This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. So our guest today, DJ Gribben, was until recently described as the White House's infrastructure czar. Though he's now a private consultant, DJ played a major role in the development of the White House's infrastructure plan. We also have with us in the studio today Kent Smetters, a professor of business and public policy at Wharton, who oversees the school's public policy initiative, which has developed the Penn-Wharton budget model. Uh, by way of background for our conversation, the Penn-Wharton budget model analyzed the White House and Democrat versions of the infrastructure plans. It found small effects and little impact on GDP. The White House uh, disputed the Penn-Wharton budget model analysis, as knowledge at Wharton readers will remember from our coverage back in March of this year. Uh, the Penn-Wharton budget model and knowledge at Wharton believe strongly in having open conversations about these issues. And so we invited DJ and Kent to join us today to talk about these things. Uh, DJ and Kent, uh, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today for, at Knowledge at Wharton. Oh, thank you for having us. It's a pleasure yeah, it's being here. Great to be here. I'm so thrilled DJ's here uh, doing this. Yeah. yeah, well, thanks to both of you. Uh, we'll talk about the White House plan in a moment, but just to set the stage, uh, perhaps we could start by discussing what people need to know to have a sensible conversation about infrastructure policy. Uh, DJ, what do you think? That is an excellent question because one of the things I found in working in the White House when you're talking about federal infrastructure policy is that most people don't have a very good understanding of the federal government's role currently. They tend to think that uh, the federal highway system, not surprisingly, they think that the federal highway system is owned by the federal government. It's not. It's owned by state governments. So when you're having a conversation about infrastructure policy and the federal government's role, it's important to understand a few things. Uh, first, the federal government owns about 8% and funds about 14% of infrastructure in this country. The rest is split relatively evenly between state and local governments and the private sector. Um, secondly, the federal government's role is primarily to impose conditions on owners in conjunction with the funding. So if you receive funding for highways and you're a state or local government, there are about 99 additional requirements that the federal government puts on those funds. And while the federal government owns only about 8%, it regulates virtually 100% of major projects in the U.S. Uh, the other part, and this is one of the, the fascinating elements of a conversation around infrastructure and the federal government's role, is most people think that federal funds are free. In other words, if I get federal funds, that's a net bonus to me. And one of the more interesting challenges I had in my role at the White House was explaining to mayors that if you are receiving funds from the federal government – and your community is net positive, some community is going to be net negative, right? The federal government doesn't actually create wealth. It's just going to redistribute it. And so you had this, like, Lake Wobegon-type aura around the conversation where everyone thought they were going to be above average when all the dust settled. <laughs> um, and then that, that same, along those sort of same lines, is that the federal government does impose costs when funds come from a community to the federal government and back, and... Uh, those costs range from 15 to 25 percent. So if you provide a dollar to the federal government, you're going to get somewhere between 75 and 85 cents back. And people don't sort of take that into account when they're thinking about they, they you know, if you send a federal government a dollar and you get 75 cents back, the headline reads, community receives 75 cents from federal government. 
and they don't look at the other side of the equation, which will you just sent them a dollar. So I think you need to understand or one needs to understand all of those elements when you start talking about infrastructure policy and the federal government's role. Great. Th- thank you, DJ. Kent, what do you think? No, I completely agree with that. And, you know, one of the it, it, the big issue, of course, is states and localities qualify for uh, federal funding, and these can take different forms, closed-ended grants, loans, open-ended grants. And as we'll talk about, you know, the literature has done uh, lots of work looking at the effectiveness of these grants actually stimulating um, state and local uh, uh, budgets and whether it truly increases um, of a spending more than it otherwise would have had it been not for that, that federal money. And so there's a big kind of fungibility issue that happens in, in these debates, and um, that's what a lot of our, our own work has, has looked at. Great. Great. Uh, thank you. So, so it's a good, good segue then to talk about the White House uh, infrastructure plan. So, DJ, uh, I wonder if you, we could start with you uh, and, and perhaps you could summarize the White House plan for us. I would be happy to. So let me take a 12-month effort and try to smash it down into just a couple of minutes, uh, which <laughs> okay. is, first of all, what is our goal? Uh, what were we trying to accomplish? We were trying to speed project delivery and provide sustainable funding sources for infrastructure in our country. Um, those were the two major goals. So increased funding and how, does, how do we permit projects in a reasonable period of time? In addition... We also want to do four other things, which are eliminate artificial barriers created by federal preferences. So sometimes the, a community may have an infrastructure need, but the federal government gives them money of a different color, mm-hmm. so they can't spend it on the need they have. They're required mm-hmm. to spend it on something else. Uh, how do we empower infrastructure owners in terms of environmental permitting, project selection? So how do we let communities make have greater decision rights around their own infrastructure? Um, how do we encourage innovation? So we have this fantastic system that built the interstates in the 50s and 60s. And it was so fantastic, we have kept that model till today. Mm. And so, you know, it's been 62 years. Maybe we need to rethink how this model works. And then finally, we want to increase efficiency and public trust. Mm. One of the challenges you have is the public will express a willingness to invest more in infrastructure, but they don't have a lot of trust that that money will be invested wisely. So how do we encourage public trust? So um, what we did was, and it, you know, we, we, we agree with the Wharton paper. Actually, I should put a caveat here and not use we <laughs> because <laughs> uh, I'm speaking on my own behalf, not on behalf sure. of the administration. Sure. So I agree with the approach taken by, by Wharton and what Kent said, which there is a substitution effect with federal mm-hmm. funding mm-hmm. where historically, and we saw this in the Recovery Act, when the federal government gives a community money for infrastructure, mm. money is fungible. So what mm. they tend to do is take funds that they were going to spend on infrastructure, mm. substitute federal funds for that amount, mm. and then take the freed up funds and spend them on other mm. non-infrastructure priorities. So how do you create a system that avoids that problem? Um, because state and local governments will take advantage of, mm. rightfully so, of flexibility that they're given mm. around funding. So what we were trying to do is, with that in mind, create a program that requires a, an applicant to do several things. First of all, they need to create a new revenue stream. Hmm. So they don't receive incentive funds for a project. They receive incentive funds for new revenue. And that was one of the hardest concepts people had getting their heads around because traditionally we talk about infrastructure, you talk about projects. 
not systems. And so what we're trying to do is create a whole new system where you wouldn't get money for a project. You get money for a new revenue stream. Um, then you needed to identify the project that revenue stream was going to be spent on. And then we had objective criteria because this is a competition between applicants. So objective criteria of how we would score that application. So you need a new revenue stream, need a project, show us how you're going to spend on the project, so how you're going to spend on maintenance. Um, are you being innovative in your procurement? Are you using technology? And what is your social and economic return on investment? So those were the five criteria. Then that applicant would compete against other applicants with revenue streams and projects. And then the score, and you know, part of the challenge we have is this is relatively complicated to try to get around the substitution effect. Then your score is multiplied by the non-federal share of funding in your project. So in other words, it's almost like a reverse auction dynamic. Mm. So the less federal funding you asked for, the more likely you were to win the, the competition and get a, a funding for your, for your revenue stream. And then what would happen is the federal government would give you a commitment letter saying, you've pledged to raise this much for this project. We will commit to giving you this much in federal funds if you raise those new revenues for that project. So I think the challenge with the Wharton study is it looked at this and it looked at it through a lens as if we were still in the old days of giving money out in terms of block grants for communities to make decisions to allow that fungibility, when in essence what we had done is structured this where it was a competition. So there is no block grant. When you show up with to, to the when you show up to the party with your application, you may get zero. You don't necessarily win anything. So, and what we're hoping is that that competition would force applicants to truly create new revenue streams and spend it on projects that they would not have done otherwise. And so you have a net positive effect on infrastructure funding overall. Right. Uh, so th thank you, DJ. Uh, Kent, what, was the, uh, what are the findings at w Wharton of right. the, this program? Yeah. Um, so we took, uh, it was basically five basic steps that we did in this study. Now we can kind of get to what, what really is the big issue that DJ yes. just kind of concluded with. The first step is that we de decompose the White House framework into basically eight categories, five of which are clear spending categories, the way the grants work and loans work and so forth. And three are um, categories related to things like expediting permitting and other things that are kind of non-spending categories. And the second step is then we look to the very large kind of past literature, over 25 studies um, that looked at past attempts at the federal government trying to stimulate new investment that otherwise would have not uh, occurred. And so for each of these five spending categories, then we did a mapping to figure out how much of the federal government spending actually leads to additional state and local uh, uh, spending on these different five categories. Then the third step, we did another literature review, and the really question there is, even if you believe the government has some stimulating effect on state and local spending, what is the marginal product of that additional spending? That is, what's the value of public infrastructure versus private versus government debt and, th and so forth? And we actually have a pretty aggressive return on the public uh, return, uh, about over 10% per year risk-free. So this is almost 800 basis points above the government's borrowing costs. So it looks like a very large kind of arbitrage, you know, opportunity. Mm. Mm. And then the fourth step is we say, okay, how does the federal government finance its $200 billion? Um, is it using deficit?
benefits? Is it using a different type of tax system, like what's called lump sum taxes, which is the opposite extreme, very efficient, um, this, to the extent that it's deficit finance? Because the, the framework doesn't really say how the federal government's going to spend, where it's going to raise its $200 billion from. So if it's deficit finance, it's a little bit more negative. If it's using user taxes and lump sum taxes, that's the, the opposite extreme, the most efficient. And then the uh, fifth step is that coming back to these three non-spending categories like permitting, um, the idea of the plan was to try to um, get permits to happen faster um, and get rid of some of the red tape. And there's no question infrastructure spending is plagued with red tape. Mm-hmm. Um, I, basically, everybody agrees with that. And so what we did is we looked at past studies of time to build studies. And mm-hmm. a, a great survey was done by, in fact, the Congressional Budget Office. Mm-hmm. And we basically assume, I think optimistically, that we're, we're going to double the speed of the time to build. That is cut Correct. the time to build a hat in half. And so um, the net effect was still we found fairly small effects because we found that the, uh, the White House was hoping to get from the $200 billion to get an entire additional spending of $1.5 trillion that the states and localities would uh, essentially have a 750% multiplier on the federal government right. uh, share. So the total spend would be one5 We estimate at the high end that the total spend would be about $230 billion. And so when you spread that, you know, think of that as over like 10 years over time, you know, it's it's not going to have a very big uh, impact on, on GDP. Uh, and what are some of the, of the reasons that you came to the conclusion that you did? Yeah, I mean, and the really big issue is the point that uh, DJ just uh, ended his uh, comments with. And here's the really big, um, I think, the, the big debate. And that is the White House proposal is to spend $200 billion and hope that the state and local LEs will come up with another $1.3 trillion for a total spend of this $1.5 trillion. So that's a 750% kind of multiplier on the government share. Um, the past studies that we've looked at that look at similar mechanisms, things like closed ending grants, and it's, it's true, these aren't block, standard block grants. We just hand you the money. Um, these are grants with qualifications and so forth. Um, and so we looked at loans but there's no open-ended grants. Um, those are the ones that are actually more effective <laughs> based on the literature. And the, the best studies that we found um, at the, uh, show that instead of it being a 750% multiplier, it's about a 13% multiplier. And that seems very counterintuitive. The idea is the federal government spends a dollar, and the net impact of including that dollar is only 13% cents on that dollar of total new spending. And so um, the, the question is, you know, why does that happen? <laughs> and um, and there's been dozens of studies that have looked at it. The federal government's aware. Here's what the big issue is. How does the federal government distinguish not just between new spending and not new spending or new revenue versus not new revenue? It really is how does the federal government distinguish between new sources of revenue that would have been already done without the federal government's help? Because states all the time are doing new bond issuance, new revenue sources all the time, even without the federal government help, versus what new revenue sources would have been done only with the federal government's help. And so there's been tons of studies on this. Lots of different tricks have been tried. The federal government's been aware of this issue for a while. They've been trying things for the last 50 years. This literature goes back over a half century mm-hmm. trying to estimate uh, uh, estimate this. And if anything, my reading of the literature is that even some of these low multipliers, 13, maybe 20 percent, could actually be upward biased mm-hmm. because of uh, DJ in the past, I know, has talked about this coupon effect, which I, compl- I completely agree with. And that is, mm-hmm. a lot of times states will actually 
hold back mm. infrastructure spending, mm. waiting for the government program to come along mm. so they can truly call this a new project or a new revenue source. Um, and so they're, they're actually holding back. And so then when the government funding comes along, it looks like it's more productive yeah. than it would have been because the states without the federal government funding would have, in fact, probably already done that, that, that investment. And so that's been the trick is try to how to distinguish that. And, and Richard Thaler, who uh, recently won the Nobel Prize, he wrote a paper some, some years ago and asked the question, like, why, do, why does additional government dollar, federal government dollar, lead to any additional state and local spending? Because there should always be some trick of or some way that the state and localities should be able to declare something as new, something they otherwise wouldn't have done. And how does the government really prove you know, otherwise? That's, that's been the ongoing kind of trick. And there does seem to be some effect about this 13 cents on the dollar. In fact, it's economists, doing, given this fungibility issue, we actually call it a puzzle. It's known as the flypaper effect. Mm-hmm. And that is, why is there any <laughs> impact? And that's always been kind of the puzzle on this flypaper. So there is some impact, um, uh, but it, it's typically what we see it is on open-ended grants. Um, um, which is not part of this the, this framework, and but and uh, it's it's typically not been a very big effect. Right. Well, uh, th- thank you, Kent. Uh, DJ, coming back to you, the, the the White House disagreed with this uh, the Penn Wharton budget model analysis. So what what were the main objections? Uh, so the White House disagreed strongly. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's right. That's let me right. Let a little explanation. <laughs> Mainly because um, when when I worked as an investment banker. We would have analysts that would would model transactions and benefits, and sometimes they'd get lost in the model. Right? They, they're they're in so many details that they didn't pull back and look at the big picture. Um, the, the the Wharton study, in essence, concluded that incentives don't work, hmm. which is a very odd conclusion for economists to make. Hmm. So, in other words, what hmm. we were hmm. saying is, right now, and, and and Ken touched on this coupon effect, and so I'll talk about that a little bit. Mm. Right now, if you're a governor or mayor and you want to raise funds for infrastructure, mm. that's politically hard, mm. right? Mm. Plus, you have this complicating effect where your taxpayers will tell you or your constituents will tell you, listen, don't raise my taxes. Mm. Get this free federal money and use that instead so someone else pays for this infrastructure. Mm. So you're walking into a political and economic environment mm. that's already distorted against raising new revenue. Right. And so what we are trying to say is how do we break that dynamic? So instead of saying, you know, hey, we might give you money if you don't do anything – we were trying to flip that incentive structure and say, listen, the federal government will actually give you funds for raising new revenue. Right. And you can raise it however you want to, and you can spend it on whatever infrastructure you want to. So we're giving you lots of flexibility, lots of opportunities to access this new revenue. So I think that um, the, the, the substitution effect, and can't mention all the literature, the challenge is the literature really is focused on past efforts mm-hmm. to increase to increase infrastructure spending, which were matching grants or other forms of direct revenue from the federal government. And there is a strong substitution effect there. I don't think there's any literature on this idea because, again, this is a very new approach that we haven't really done anything like this before. Will there be some gamesmanship? Yes. In any incentive program, you're going to have a subset of people that would have engaged in that behavior anyway. But 
but the whole point of creating incentives is to try to realign people's behavior to match with those incentives. So we were just surprised that the conclusion of the word paper, in essence, was economic incentives for people to change their behavior won't work in this field. Kent, what do you think? Do incentives work? Oh, absolutely. I, but I think <laughs> people are very clever and they can figure out how they get a dollar. Um, and it's uh, so if what the past literature has shown is that, you know, these open ended grants, they really do create marginal effects because if I spend more, I'm, I'm going to get um, uh, additional money. Um, uh, anything that's not open ended, and this plan does not have these open ended uh, uh, approach to it, because that's much more expensive to do it that way. Um, it, it, it's it, what, what economists call inframarginal. And so if I'm going to give you a buck for you to do what you're going to do anyway. Very challenging for the federal government to figure out if you're going to do that or, or not, because I can always say I wasn't going to do that. Yeah. And states have pretty much figured out. I mean, it's such a small spend relative to total infrastructure spending that it, it becomes easy to absorb that mm-hmm. in, in, in our view. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think the White House uh, plan it was very laudable in recognizing the problem. Um, it's not obvious to me that they were able to solve it unless they go to this much more expensive, open-ended uh, approach. And it's also true, and I want to make this, you know, I think this is important, is that the uh, focus on averages doesn't mean that all infrastructure spending is not going to be productive. I mean, it, it, there's, averages are uh, good to focus on because, you know, that's its part reflects the political process that we've seen in the past. But there are clearly projects that have, like especially repairs uh, projects and bridges and so forth that might have a, a fairly high ROI relative to the other projects. Um, and, uh, new projects get all the attention, but a lot of times it's the repairs. And a lot of the White House, uh, you know, criticism too was focus on technicalities of uh, they said that we're doing all this and let's close the economy and that wasn't mm-hmm. uh, correct or that we're assuming a very low marginal productive capital um, and that was uh, not correct uh, either. But nonetheless, um, it really comes back to this issue. Can the federal government really tease out what's truly going to be not just new, uh, but it's going to be new and additional to what uh, the states and localities would have otherwise done? So, DJ, since you are our guest, we'll give you the last word on this on this particular debate before we move oh, on to thank other you. things. That's very generous of you. Again, I, I would just say that I don't think I disagreed with anything in the, the, the Penn-Wharton study. I just think it was applied to something the administration didn't propose. So mm-hmm. we were proposing a clear, listen, if you create new funds and you apply it to a new project, we will incentivize that. Hmm. Will there be a little bit of that that would have happened anyway? Of course. If you look at the tax code, anytime we use the tax code to incentivize behavior, some of that behavior would have happened anyway. But you see dramatic swings in behavior based Hmm. upon the tax code. So we're looking for that same type of dynamic and to try to overcome a very real and unfair political obstacle that, that leaders have. So Mayor Garcetti... Um, raised funding through an increased sales tax and measure M worth about $120 billion. But, and that was with 72% of the vote, right? So a significant increase in funding. But he had to do that against a headwind of potential free federal funds coming. So instead of that, we would try to create a tailwind to say, no, 
the future leaders who do something like this, not not only would they hit with why are you doing this, federal government should pay for it, they can counter with, no, actually, if we do this, we have a commitment from the federal government to raise new revenue for infrastructure. Well, I think we could probably go on debating this issue for the rest of yeah, right, the yeah. 24 hours at least. But uh, maybe we can turn to some broader questions sure. about infrastructure. So, Kent, uh, states seem to be strategic in how yeah. they approach federal cost share by withholding projects until a federal grant program comes along. And, and both of you referred to the, the coupon effect yeah. uh, that, that the DJ has spoken about in the past. So do, do you agree with that, and, and, and what can be done about it? Oh, yeah. I mean, DJ is absolutely right that states routinely seem to have— in fact, he's the one that—I don't know if that you're original to the coupon effect, but I love the terminology. He's the first person I've heard use that term. I think it's exactly right, where states will often withhold doing projects because they're anticipating the federal government um, uh, coming up with uh, some type of matching— money uh, later on. Um, it, it's somewhat analogous to comp- corporations holding so much money overseas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, If they were holding money overseas, um, hoping that the federal government would eventually change the tax code so that they could mm-hmm. repatriate that money mm-hmm. at a much lower tax rate. And a completely rational thing to mm-hmm. be doing um, mm-hmm. from, a, from a company or from a state perspective. Mm-hmm. From a social perspective, of course, that's just pure, you know, uh, it creates a, this bigger substitution effect. Right. And it becomes now harder to distinguish what's truly new and additional. It's not just new that we care about mm-hmm. because states are constantly doing new revenue sources, new projects. It's new and additional relative to what the federal government would have done. So it just it makes it makes it such a messier um, uh, thing to this, 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 disentangle. Uh, what do you think, DJ? Yeah, I, I agree. And we did talk about this coupon effect. Let me explain that a little bit. So right now, for example, if we were in the market for a new suit and we thought we might get a 50% coupon for a suit, what will we do? Well, we'll delay that decision. I think yeah. there's like not from mm-hmm. strategic delay, mm-hmm. right? So we're if if we can get additional information or different benefits in the future then it's highly economic rational for us to say, let me delay that decision. And so right now, we talked about federal government has limited funding. Federal government imposes costs on that funding, so you net fewer dollars as a result of federal restrictions. But I think you need to add on to it this uh, very real political dynamic, which is this coupon effect of I am incentivized as a leader, political leader, to delay any increase in revenue. And because state and local governments provide three to four times more funding for infrastructure than the federal government does, it can have this very distorting impact where a federal dollar could, in essence, lock up three to four state local dollars, just the prospect of that hanging out there. So, again, part of what we're trying to do in our proposal is flip that around and say, uh, instead of engaging in strategic delay, act now and raise revenue and we'll incentivize you for that behavior. Uh, so, uh, uh, Kent, to co- come back, you, you sort of touched upon this in one of your earlier points. Uh, what areas of instru- infrastructure seem to produce the biggest ROI? Yeah. Uh, it's not the cool new projects, mm-hmm. typically. It's typically the really boring stuff, like repairing stuff. <laughs> and so um, in Pennsylvania, for example, we have about over 400 bridges that will probably fail inspection in a couple of years. <laughs> Could you imagine a critical bridge 
you know, going out of the service and then all that transportation having to be rerouted, the uh, transportation of, especially of shipment of trucks, uh, cargo and things like that. And so I think it's um, it's the ROI is highest typically on repairing stuff. That's not to say that there is not going to be a, um, a decent ROI um, on kind of new projects. You can uh, imagine, you know, with self-driving cars, there's going to be some benefit to, you know, prepping infrastructure for that. Uh, what we did in our analysis is uh, we took an average. And averages can be misleading because, you know, again, that it's based on what happened in the past and how a government tends to allocate these things. You can only kind of look at an average to get a macro effect. Um, but it, it's ultimately determined by a political process. But if, the, if we could, could actually somehow have a political process that really isolated, you know, um, uh, high ROI projects, they would typically focus on, a lot of it would focus on just repairing existing infrastructure. Now, uh, closely related to uh, the big ROI uh, is a project that has been caused the most important project in the nation, uh, the Gateway Project. Uh, so could you help us uh, and our audience understand why it is so significant? And, and you've also mentioned that it would be a great case study of on the challenges of federal funding. So if you could speak to that, DJ. Yes, I'd be happy to. Before that, I don't want to miss the chance to violently agree with Kent <laughs> <laughs> and his assessment of ROI. Right. So again, when we built the interstate system, the best ROI was a new segment that linked sure. things. Well, we yeah. have that connectivity. Like the connectivities right. are already built in. So um, the administration's plan, in fact, takes this into account mm. and says if you your new project can be maintenance. Yeah. yeah. That, you don't need to be building something brand new. That's right. You could have a huge investment maintenance. Mm -hmm. But then the question becomes who makes that ROI decision? Mm. And you can there's lots of views of thought on this. Our general approach is the community in which that infrastructure exists is probably best positioned to make that decision. Mm -hmm. So that's why we left lots of flexibility of they can do maintenance, they can do water, they can do highways, they can mm -hmm. you know, do broadband if they're in a rural area, to leave that up to that ROI decision because some of what we found is when you have a federal system overlaying a very diverse country like our country um, – those those federal decisions are always make some make sense in some places, but don't make sense in others. Um, and the gateway is a is a nice segue to take this theoretical conversation and bring it down to a live practical project. It is an enormously important thirty billion dollar series of projects in the Northeast Corridor to expand uh, trackage and train service, uh, to to double the Hudson Tunnel, to improve some bridges and uh, other areas in in the Northeast Corridor in the New York New Jersey region. And if you follow the debate uh, right now, it is high centered on the fact that. The, the region, the community, want the federal government to pay for half of that, and the federal government saying we shouldn't have to pay for half of that because while there is a federal component, it's not 50% of the value. And the reason I like this, uh, and it has been labeled the most important project <clears throat> in America, primarily by the New York press and the D.C. press. Interestingly, when I travel around the country and I go to the South and the West <laughs> and other places, um, they don't view this as the most important project in America. <laughs> Their most important project tends to be a little bit more local. Yeah. Um, but the, what makes the Gateway Project interesting is it is massively important, mm. and it is a conversation around when you have a project that has local benefits, state benefits, regional benefits, and national benefits, 
who should pay for what component of that. Mm -hmm. And part of what we were pushing is um, we think the best answer is to figure out who is benefiting for it. And then if it's affordable, let the beneficiaries pay for the share that they're benefiting from. So if it's primarily a local project, then it should be primarily locally funded. If it's primarily federal, it's primarily federal funded. Um, but that is not the, the level of debate right now. It is the Fed should pay half. No, we shouldn't. Yes, we should. No, we shouldn't. Yes, we should. And so as a result, this extremely important project to our country is just stuck in a process that uh, doesn't have much uh, hope of concluding anytime soon. Uh, Kent, what do you think? What what does this mean? Lessons to be learned from the Gateway? Project? Yeah, no, I think I, I completely agree. The Gateway is one of those uh, projects that likely has pretty high ROI because mm. it's a big congestion in the Northeast Corridor, mm. and relieving that congestion is a is a, a, a good thing. It's also one of those projects that the federal government has a lot more control on, and things that the federal government actually directly owns, like Amtrak, and there's. You know, there's obviously a state and local component to tracks and things like that. But things that it directly controls, you don't have to worry as much about the substitution effect if um, they actually own those those assets. Um, it's also instructive, as DJ mentioned, very popular in the Northeast. We all get it, you know, seeing the congestion in the Northeast corridor. And you, you just say, you know, just think about the wait time. And, you know, if you thought about the value of that, that economically, how much that wait time costs and so forth. Um, but then politically, you notice that Amtrak doesn't just run in the very profitable Northeast Corridor. It runs throughout the country because everybody wants their Amtrak, even if it's not very uh, profitable. And that's been the real tough thing is, I mean, it, not only how do you identify what's truly going to be incrementally new versus what's just new and what have already, already been done, but then even if you can identify these high ROI projects, how do you get it through the political process where it's not just some big log rolling, everybody gets their, their piece of pie, and then in the end, you know, you may have a really high ROI component in the Northeast and really low negative <laughs> ROI component for that train track that has to be maintained going through, you know, very low dense, you know, area. And overall, the entire package may now no longer be high ROI anymore. And so, I mean, that's been the tough aspect of how do we really isolate those high ROI projects. And I want to sort of, sort of come back on the yeah. Amtrak issue because this is okay. a very important dynamic. And mm -hmm. I touched on a little bit when the, when the federal government spends funds, it's coming from another community. Mm -hmm. So right now the estimate from DOT, and you know, I, I haven't said these numbers ind independently, is about 90% of the benefits are local. So 90% of the benefits of those of that system is getting people from New Jersey into New York for work and back. So when we say we want the federal government to help fix that, what we're saying mm -hmm. is the people in Columbus and Austin yeah. and Seattle is we want to take money from you and send it to these New York commuters. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a fantastic conversation with Peter Rogoff, who heads mm -hmm. up uh, Seattle Sound Transit, mm -hmm. and concluded with saying, listen, I totally understand the value mm -hmm. of what you're doing for the Seattle region. But how do I tell the people in Columbus I'm taking money from them to send to you mm, because yeah. your needs are so much higher than theirs? Right. Yeah. And when we, when we 
if we can get onto a more kind of rational, objective conversation, then I think it's easier for this to have this conversation on the future of infrastructure than if people are still set in this mindset of if I get money, it's free money. Mm-hmm. My favorite dynamic was people who would come to me and say, listen, state and local governments can't afford infrastructure, so the federal government has to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And my question is, well, where do you think the federal government gets its funding from? Like every federal taxpayer is in a state and in a community. So we're not – there is not a free independent set of pool of funding that can be used for infrastructure. If we're spending it in one community, it's coming from another community. Uh, I have a sort of uh, odd uh, experience recently. I was watching this – Film, the Fiddler on the Roof, mm-hmm. where Tevi, Tevi yes. the the milkman, is singing a song about what he would do if he were a rich man. Yes, yes. And and one of the lines in that song is that he would build a house with one staircase that goes just up, and another staircase just as comes down, <laughs> and a third one that goes nowhere at all. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and and the infrastructure equivalent of that is sort of the the bridge to nowhere. And I, how, Kent, I wonder how do we avoid that problem? Yeah, I mean, people have talked about this a lot in the past. You know, how do you truly stimulate new local and state spending, but then how do you also avoid, you know, the bridge over the swampland and so forth? It's challenging because ultimately Congress has to appropriate these funds. Mm-hmm. So people have talked about having these commissions, these blue ribbon groups to try to figure out what's the high ROI. I'm all in favor of that, but ultimately in the end, we know what happens with those types of reports, and that is it becomes part of a political process and where different communities are saying, why are we subsidizing you know, uh, what looks like very urban, rich you know, communities and so forth? I will one, you know, criticism I think is valid uh, criticism of some of the uh, more urban, you know, focus is that as DJ has pointed out, so much of the benefit in the Northeast Corridor is simply commuters trying to get into work every day. Mm-hmm. Um, tremendous value. But one reason why people are living in New Jersey is because New York is zoning is so restrictive. Not as restrictive, say, as Los Angeles and others, but it's kind of like, or San Francisco, but it's like, why are we rewarding these cities for having such uh, regressive (laughs) zoning that pushes people out of the city um, and now they're kind of forced to kind of commute uh, in the work. I mean, if this is a problem, New York should be solving this problem with right. with this less regressive. I mean, zoning is one of those things that is, you know, economists seem to agree pretty much across the board. It's highly regressive. It's a substantial implicit tax um, on people, and it creates all these distortions, including um, the requirement to, com- to commute in. Oh, DJ, what do you think? Uh I agree that there is a challenge with the allocated spending, mm. which is it tends to be politically allocated and not <laughs> say market allocated, which is not right. surprising. So how do you overcome that obstacle? Because these are governmental assets with governmental funding, so they're in a political system. I think the answer to avoiding bridges to nowhere is to not have Congress pick projects. Mm. So the challenge is the further removed you are from the actual taxpayers, the more likely you're to end up with a project that doesn't make any sense to the community. There is a fascinating uh, debate going on in a community around a $100 million project, Mm -hmm. and there was a really vibrant, wait a minute, does this make sense? Um, Should we be spending money here? Is this a priority for our community? And then someone made the point that these funds are federal, and I was like, oh, okay, Mm -hmm. then just spend Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) 
Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so there's, I think the, the more removed, I mean, another benefit yeah. to incentivizing state and local revenue is the more removed the revenue is from the people that are using it and from the project itself, right. the more likely you are to have bridges to nowhere and a misallocation of resources. And I, I, yeah. I agree with that. In fact, that's what this idea of the, having these commissions or having an agency pick the projects. But, you know, the, we have this constitution that gets kind of gets in the way. <laughs> Ultimately, Congress has to do the appropriation. And that's where I think things really – they cannot outsource that. And it becomes, yes, it, it, these commissions and reports can create an embarrassment factor. But ultimately, Congress does the appropriation. And um, what they could do is do some type of appropriation that's very broad that then hands it over to some group, that, you know, agency to try to figure out some of these things. But, you know, in the past, at least, Congress has resisted because people want their stuff. I mean, they want, you know, their stuff in their backyard. Or Congress could create an incentive program, which encourages state and local governments to generate revenue that then is kept at the local and state level. So I, I think the, the part of this is, um, and I hear a little bit in this conversation, we need to rethink the federal government's role. Hmm. So as a country, we did this remarkably effective hmm. thing. of hmm. We imposed a gas tax on the entire nation, hmm. and we built the world's best interstate system. Okay, right. Check. Mission accomplished. So now the question is, what do we do going forward? Hmm. And you know, as chief counsel at Federal Highways, we had this debate, and this was back in 2004, 2005, where we had this conversation around what is the federal government's role now that you don't need a bridge engineer in Washington because there's not one in your state. You've got a you know, bunch of them in your state and a bunch of consultants to go with that. So how do we reformat the federal government's role? And I think to a large degree, people are still stuck in the, the best way for us to have infrastructure is send money to Washington and have it come back. And, and I would argue actually that's that that's a still an effective way to do certain things, but for the vast bulk of our current infrastructure needs, which are primarily lo- local, that's an incredibly inefficient way to pay for those local needs. Well, uh, one of the most important infrastructure needs seems to concern air traffic systems in particular, uh, which seem somewhat outdated uh, relative to Europe. Uh, Kent, do you agree with that? And so, what I do, and I know uh, DJ's really the expert is worked a lot on this. Um, if you compare us versus UK, Australia, and other countries, I mean, just the ability to move people—that's what it really comes down to. Can you just moving people mm-hmm. and doing that effectively and doing it fast? Mm-hmm. That is where you get tremendous ROI. Mm-hmm. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, you know, took the very controversial. Um, position of privatizing lots of the uh, infrastructure in the UK, very controversial at the time, not controversial anymore. For the most part, people say that worked, worked really well. And the UK system, not perfect, Heathrow, I still sometimes pull my hair out trying to get through that you know, <laughs> security line. But nonetheless, um, it is much more effective than in terms of moving people than what we see in the United States. It's, it's our challenge having these conversations because whenever you put the word privatization in front of something, mm-hmm. you know, you always get people are just focused on that word. It looks like a right-wing, conservative you know, right. type of word. But there are strategic uses of privatization mm-hmm. that you can now get um, the localities to actually take much more ownership. Uh, they certainly own the airports already, but in terms of the air traffic systems, they can take a much more uh, a, a control of that 
that. And on top of that, it's not obvious why localities are even owning the airports versus having a for-profit uh, company that actually gets more money the more people that they move. You can still, you know, if you want to deal with market power, you can still put, you know, price caps and things like that on and have a reasonable return like we do with utilities. But you can still, uh, you know, create a much more people movement in, in these systems where it's air traffic control, which is f- controlled by the federal government, right. local airports, which is controlled more locally. All that stuff could be, be um, prob- probably incentivized much greater to move people through through more private effort. Yeah, again, t- totally agree with what Kent said. One of the challenges we have around air traffic control is we're asking the FAA to do something that they're not well designed to accomplish, mm-hmm. which is, in essence, we'd like you to run a technology business inside a government bureaucracy with all of the very important rules around procurement and everything else that comes with government uh, operations. So the administration proposed following Canada's model, which they did over a decade ago or 20 years ago, which is outsourcing the air traffic control so you have a separate entity that can then um, implement what we call in this country next-gen technology. So the one thing that the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and the Trump administration all have in common is we all tried to accelerate the next-gen process. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And we've been in the process of accelerating next-gen for uh, multiples longer than it should have taken to actually implement next-gen. And part of that, and I, and I don't, this is no fault at all of the FAAs, is they are in a, uh, a management structure, an organizational structure that does not allow for quick decisions around procurement. In fact, even the um, air traffic controllers union supported outsourcing. This is the only time I know of where a hmm. public employee <laughs> yeah. union, a public employee union yeah. said, we'd like to not be part of the government anymore because effectively we can't do our jobs. Yeah. Because by the time we ask for technology and we get it from the FAA through their process, it's already outdated. So um, I think there is an enormous amount of benefits. We have 2 million people plus that fly every day in this country. Mm. Huge benefits to uh, improving this technology. But it is a case where we're asking the government to do something that the government's really not well equipped to do. There's a reason why air traffic controllers... um, Virtually everyone I know smokes. I mean, it's a, <laughs> right, exactly. it is a very high pressure job. Unbelievable. And, and, right. and, and DJ is exactly right. I mean, you, govern, the federal government's procurement and use of technology. It, just look no further than the Affordable Care Act. Regardless mm. of your views on the Affordable Care Act itself, mm. the website, the technology <laughs> behind it, a billion dollars spend for a website that literally would cost. Um, a less than a million dollars to spend to build. It's mm-hmm. actually a very simple website. In yeah. fact, the what they, most that's, the real work was actually done by the agencies, the IRS, creating their APIs and so forth. Very simple website. Spent a boatload of money on a very simple project. It's very hard for the federal government to to do a lot of this technology. Well, continuing on the uh, the, the the next gen theme, uh, I was wondering when you look around the world. In which countries do you see the most innovation on infrastructure? And, and, uh, and, and by no, inf- innovation, I'm referring not just to the use of technology, but also uh, to the way in which the, these projects are funded. What are some of the main lessons from uh, the U.S. Uh, for, from these experiences? I, mean, I think that there's a variety of countries. I mean, next gen, obviously, Canada, our neighbor to the north, has done a, a remarkable job. Mm of providing a quasi-government service in a very efficient way. Uh, You can look all the way to the other side of the globe in Australia Mm. 
and they have done a really good job of developing world-class infrastructure. And I think the, the core of this is what Kent was mentioning earlier, is that they look at infrastructure, and airport's a great example. Mm-hmm. An airport is a giant shopping mall <laughs> yeah. to a large extent with a lot where you need to do security and you need to bring airplanes in. But it is governmental infrastructure with a heavy private sector component to it. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the answer is there are some things only the government can do. Like And some things only the federal government can do. And that, that the government should be doing those things. But to the extent that we can get the private sector involved in truly non-governmental uh, activities, mm-hmm. that would be helpful. The, the challenge with that in this country is Congress, in the word of bill, mm-hmm. just declared that hydropower, a generation of hydropower is an inherent government mm-hmm. function. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, that is crazy. Like mm-hmm. a generation of hydropower is an inherently governmental function. <laughs> And and the the maintaining those facilities is inherently <laughs> governmental, so so we have this still in this country of this 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 tug between we want the federal government to provide things because we think that that doesn't cost us anything, but then with that provision comes um, a number of rules that are inefficient. So when the government, the federal government or any government builds infrastructure, its mission isn't just to build infrastructure, mm-hmm. and we saw this. You know, probably the best case study is the Big Dig, right? Its mission is to build infrastructure and train employees and help disadvantaged businesses and purchase domestic products. And so you have this long laundry list of things the government tries to accomplish when it wants to build infrastructure. And so what that that laundry list does is it has lots of social benefits, but then it also dramatically increases the cost and slows the timetable of the delivery of infrastructure. So it's finding that balance between accomplishing these non-infrastructure goals we want to accomplish in the realm of infrastructure – and building something efficiently. And so when we can strike that balance and then give the private sector more responsibility for doing the truly sort of commercial activities, you end up with a much more robust, lower cost, quicker delivery system than we have in the U.S. today. Yeah, and the Big Dig is an excellent example. I mean, it, as everybody knows, it went way, way over budget, and a lot of the criticism there was, hey, we, we know the federal government's writing these checks. We got really powerful senators to, you know, uh, uh, Kerry and Kennedy, um, and it, it was one of those things that we just can keep soaking this uh, checkbook. And if there was more incentives in place that get stuff done on time, uh, it's going to uh, use much more um, of uh, pr- private kind of incentives. Uh, what other countries seem to be doing really well is on the people moving, especially uh, with with air traffic. And um, you, you see there's so many opportunities there for basically if a company knows that they're going to get paid more to move more people, there's just so many things that they can do to increase efficiency. It's airport design. There's basic you know, um, uh, user movement issues within the airport. There's so many things that they can do, maintain safety while, while just moving people at a much rap- more rapid rate. And if I could add on that, and some of those things are not complicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when a private operator took over the Chicago Skyway project, mm-hmm. so this is a, a highway that comes from the lake into the city, which every Sunday had massive backups. What they did is they had a person in the toll booth collecting tolls. This is back for electronic tolling. And then a person in traffic collecting tolls. So they collected from two mm. cars at a time. Mm. Dramatically <laughs> shrink the backlog. Now, yeah. that could have happened at any point. There was no right. great technology. This was just simple of, hey, why don't we do two people at a time instead of one? Yeah. But the difference yeah. being is now you had an operator that was incentivized to yes, do that. That's a great example. Right. Yeah. It's a great example. Yeah. 
Well, th- that's been a, this a great conversation, uh, DJ. Thank you, Kent. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed speaking with both of you. And thank you for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Oh, thank you for having us. Yeah, great to be here. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.